0: Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my GaudiMittsBest22.com Podbean podcast and YouTube videos. Very excited. Once again, I'm always excited for the guests that I have. Uh, I, I'm very, very fortunate and lucky that, I, that I'm able to line up the guests that I, am, that I am able to line up. We're joined today by Dr. Roger Nutt. He is the provost at Ave Maria University uh, down in Florida on the Gulf Coast uh, near Naples, Florida. And uh, also, professor of theology there is that correct, Roger? That's right. And uh, you got you've got an STB an STL and an STD, all from the Angelicum in Rome, correct?
1: Yeah, and a last name of not to go with my STD, right? So.
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So obviously, have a sense of humor too, which is which is needed in this business these days. I also like to say I'm very happy to finally make this connection with Roger, because I was supposed to, we've been having trouble getting the Larry Chap, Ave Maria connection going. I was supposed to give a talk there in February, but my flight from Scranton got canceled as I was sitting on the plane for mechanical reasons. Then when I went to rebook the flight, discovered that there were absolutely no connecting flights to Fort Myers, which is the airport for three days, because there was a backup due to an ice storm that had been in Texas or something. So that was crazy that there were absolutely no connections. Then I was supposed to do this interview with him last week, and I got sick, so we had to cancel. So it was like, whoa, there's some gremlins going, but not today. We are both fit and healthy and and raring to go here Uh, because uh, Dr. Nutt is the uh, provost at Ave Maria, and because I have such great respect for Ave Maria, one of my, I, I wanted to just, I wanted to bring him in to talk about Catholic higher education today. I do have, I have a few former students of mine that went through Ave Maria, you might know them, Tom Cooner, Matt Cooner, Matt Cooner, uh, Matt Cooner uh, went through Ave Maria, PhD, and Joe Lanzalatti I do believe. I uh, we know them
1: both well, had them both as students, and of course, I've loved seeing Matt Cooner on your show, and we're so proud of him. He's such a great guy, and now to see the impact that he's making at St. Bernard's, in a way it's a testimony to the fruitfulness of the kind of impact that well-formed young scholars can have in the life of the church. So Matt Cooner is a great boast uh, to Ave, and so is Joe.
0: Yeah, and that sort of brings us then right to our topic, which is uh, Catholic higher education today, I, I, you know, the first thing, the point I want to make is that in order to really transform or help to transform the American Catholic Church into something more recognizably Catholic, it doesn't really necessarily take uh, three or 400 Catholic universities all doing the same thing. It, all it necessarily would take would be for a handful of very influential places like Ave Maria. I, I think, for example, I, I brought up Matt Cooner and Joe Lanzalotti, and I could name others. During my time at DeSales University, just a small liberal arts school, I was there 20 years. When I look, I sometimes think, oh, what did I do? What did I do there? Not much. But then as I look at the ecclesial landscape and see the number of students that Rodney Hauser and I formed there, then now littering the landscape, the up and down the eastern seaboard. You realize, you know what? This is important, and and I think that's also true of Ave Maria. So let's start there. Let 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 begin, if you would, for the viewers. Let's let's start with just a description of Ave Maria. How did it get started? Uh, what is its mission? We were talking a little bit about this before we went on. Uh, that it started post ex corde ecclesiae. And what do you see its its impact being? So go ahead and thank you for being here.
1: Yeah, thank you, Larry. Uh, you know from our exchanges that I am a big fan of the program and the interviews. So thanks for having me. It's really delightful to talk to you. You're Catholicism's greatest conversationalist, I think. Now, so, uh, I'm great to. Uh, I'm I'm grateful wow. to, to chat with this. You know, chat about this with you. Um. Most people probably know that Ave Maria University was founded by Domino's pizza magnate Tom Monahan. He sold Domino's in 1999 for a little over a billion dollars. He had owned the Detroit Tigers when they won the World Series in 1984, and he had done a lot of impressive things in the business world and as an entrepreneur he had always been a committed Catholic. It's a very interesting story. He was orphaned, his father died when he was young and he was essentially raised by religious sisters and his, the impact that the Catholic education that he received had, had on him so deep roots in his life and he was a committed Catholic. But as he became more and more successful he was convicted in his heart that he wasn't being, being a good enough custodian with the wealth that he had been given. So he did some soul searching as to how he could most help people with his wealth. And he came away with the conviction that the best way to help people was to help the Catholic church. And the best way to help the largest number of people was to help Catholic education and in particular, Catholic higher education. So he founded what was to be Ave Maria University then as Ave Maria College in Ann Arbor or Ypsilanti, Michigan with the hopes that the university would be built uh, on the Domino's Farms plant or near there. And what happened was he couldn't, the the city of Ann Arbor didn't grant the zoning permits to allow the expansions that he needed to make to build a university. So he ended up relocating down here near Naples, Florida, where uh, it has been the home of the university for about 20 years. The campus opened in 2006. We had an interim campus down here uh, for a couple of years while this campus was being built. Some of the things that are unique about his vision that I think are very important, he had served on a number of boards over the years because of his wealth and philanthropy, including the CUA board. So he kind of lived through, if not the immediate occasion of the current affair, the fallout of the current affair, and he saw how difficult it was as a board member for a university to flourish if the theology department was not aligned with the mission and identity of the university. So as a capacious man and an entrepreneur, he wanted to found a comprehensive university from the start and not a college. He admires Catholic colleges like Thomas Aquinas College or Christendom College and the impact that they had, but. He also thought that the church needed a comprehensive university in the sense of a wide array of disciplines where the student with pre-med aspirations or who has a clear-minded sense that they want to go into this or that profession or pre-professional program could receive an education And he wanted the university to have a doctoral program in theology from the beginning because of the the struggles that he saw the church and other institutions having with poorly formed theologians. So oddly, we had a doctoral program from the very beginning. It's the kind of thing that a school might add in 10 or 20 years or when it reaches a certain level of maturation. Uh, but we were able to lure, and I'm sure you you know him, I don't know how much you interacted with him, but they were able to lure the great Father Matthew L. Lamb away from Boston College in 2004, his full professorship at Boston College, to found the doctoral program uh, here in theology. I,
0: I knew Matt Lamb very, very, very well, a dear soul, and God bless him now in paradise.
1: He was such a great mentor to all of us, and he had such a capacious vision for Catholic theology and the whole scope. He was a big proponent of a sapiential view of theology, and that vision really, the DNA of that vision really animates the entire graduate program in theology here. We now have forty alums from that doctoral program, like Matt Cooner. Matt Ramage is also an alum who's been on your program, and a lot oh, of under- I didn't.
0: Oh, that's right, Matt Ramage. Yeah, I know him well. Out at yeah, Benedictine he, College now.
1: He wrote under uh, uh, Father Lamb, so you know the the impact that those forty doctoral alums are having is is getting to be pretty significant. But we also have 35 undergraduate majors, everything from the traditional humanities and uh, you know, accounting, marketing, biochemistry, nursing, elementary education. And one of the things that's unique about Ave Maria because of its founding is that the university has not been divided into colleges, which I think is a real strength. So no matter what the major, all of the students have to take the same core curriculum that includes three theology classes, three philosophy classes, literature, science, math, language. So that's something that I'm proud of. And I think it's a real strength that you can have the combination of a robust, almost full two-year liberal arts formation, and then integrated, specialized majors built upon that foundation, and they're not in separate colleges or under under their own deans, but they're all housed okay. under a common university, you know, uh, uh, umbrella, which I think is both unique and very much a strength of the university.
0: What other doctoral programs do you have other than theology? Just theology. Just theology, just theology, Okay.
1: We have an MBA, and we have a master's in Catholic educational leadership, and then also an MA in theology. So we have three master's programs, but just for now, at least the one doctoral program. The
0: one doctoral program. Yeah, that's very good. And what is the undergraduate enrollment currently at Ave Maria?
1: About 1,200. And one of the things that's unique that we might go into about that is that around 90% of the student body live on campus. It's very purposeful. So we are very cognizant of the Newman collegiate model and the importance of complementing the curricular and the non-curricular. So the vast majority of our students live on campus and we deem that to be an important part of the formation that we offer.
0: Yeah, that, that is so important, I think. Um, okay, so that's what Ave Maria is, and as you said to me before we went on, uh, Ave Maria began and was started after Ex Corde Ecclesiae, and that starting something up from scratch, especially when you have a nice chunk of money to help you do that, is you know, it's one way of going about things. That's one model for revamping Catholic higher ed. But as you said to me also, and I think this is also true, uh, it, it's more difficult to try to reform an existing institution to bring it into line with ex corde ecclesiae. So for the sake of our listeners, perhaps you could explain to them, since many probably don't know. Uh, what was Ex Corde Ecclesiae? What was its purpose and what was its overall effect? And let's limit that effect to the United States. So go ahead.
1: Ex Corde Ecclesiae was an apostolic constitution that John Paul issued in 1990. And it was, he says very explicitly that it was meant to be the, we could use college or university, I think, interchangeably for these purposes, but it was meant to be the college or university complement to a previous document that he had issued, Sapientia Christiana, which was on ecclesiastical institutions of higher learning And he wanted this document on colleges and universities to be what he termed a Magna Carta or a blueprint for the essential identity of an authentic Catholic university or college in the American sense of the term. And it was issued in 1990 after a very long Period of tension essentially between a number of different factions. One faction were highly secularized institutions in Europe, many of these founded after the French Revolution. uh, And Newman's very cognizant of this, who just eliminated theology or any sense of the Christian tradition from having a curricular standpoint. And then some of the tensions that arose in the 60s in America and elsewhere between historically Catholic institutions and the ongoing governance and jurisdictional authority of the church. So there was a famous document issued in the late 60s by a consortium, international consortium, of Catholic institutions of higher learning, famously called the Lando Lakes. Doct- Lando
0: Lakes. Oh, yeah, Father Hesburgh.
1: That's right. And the core of the Lando Lakes document says, and it's it's funny how things change. If you read the Lando Lakes document today, a lot of people would say, "Well, I don't get what all the controversy, you know, is about this, given the, you know, the the way things have changed." But the core at Lando Lakes is that they view ecclesiastical authority or they declare ecclesiastical authority to be fundamentally extrinsic and non-binding on the institution. So there is, if not a direct throwing off, at least a distancing of the institutions from church authority and the the longer Catholic educational tradition that those institutions had lived under the sponsorship that they had lived under in the name of positioning themselves as being just like their secular counterparts in the sense, not being governed by the church or having these forms of authority over them being just like their secular counterparts, except that there's Catholic stuff on campus, like, you know, chapels and chaplaincies, and so on. So a, a major part of the teaching of ex corde ecclesiae is that the university is not extrinsic to the mission of the church, and that the hierarchy of the church is not extrinsic to the university. So People may not appreciate this. It, it's a lot of work like James Birsichll's The Dying of the Light or others yes. have documented that in this process there was a rewriting of mission statements that is telling about, you know what what happened here, what we're talking about. And the rewriting of the mission statements almost always removed reference to the church for reference to some particular charism like we are you know we are a catholic university in this or that tradition but the word church or the words catholic church are are removed and they're removed because of this little revelation that we see from lando lakes that views the church herself as an authority that is extrinsic, extrinsic. to the institution yeah.
0: i got my phd at fordham university, Jesuit school, which advertised itself as New York's Jesuit university, (laughs) not New York, not one of New York's best Catholic universities. No, New York's Jesuit university. There's also, I mean, Notre Dame and Father Hesburgh, who was its president at the time, loomed large. And I want the viewers and listeners to understand how important this Lando Lakes document is. Many of you are probably too young, didn't live through it, but it was revolutionary because it essentially was a clarion call for Catholic higher education, to be completely independent of church authority. Part of this was the result of Humanae Vitae in 68 and the mini rebellion at Catholic University when Charlie Curran, the moral theologian, dissented from Humanae Vitae and COA attempted to fire him and so on. So that was looming large in that whole thing, too. Oh, we got egg on our face over that. And I would add, and so, yeah, the word church and Catholic, these things were downplayed mission statements were altered. But I would add one other thing, uh, Dr. Nutt, and that is this. Um, And I think Birchall points this out. I'm glad you brought it up in his book, The Dying of the Light, but it could be elsewhere. Another thing that a lot of Catholic schools did that were run by religious orders like Notre Dame and the Holy Cross, Jesuit universities, Franciscan universities, is that, you know, up until that time, the universities had been officially owned by the religious orders. And what happened was the religious orders, in a sense, gave up their trusteeship, their ownership, their legal deed to the university. Uh, Some of them kept on the bylaws that so many say Jesuits had to be on the board. But the boards became largely an independent board of trustees. And this was, in theory, to negate any church and state problems in terms of federal funding and so on that universe. But that turns out to have been a huge red herring. That was not going to happen. A numerous Supreme court decisions showed that there was no conflict of church and state. So if religious orders own these things, but anyway, I interrupted you. So if you want to continue on with your little, uh, your narrative there about Excorde and Lando lakes. Uh,
1: sure. So, at the heart of Ex Corte's teaching is that the institution needs to be Catholic in the sense that Catholicism animates the entire community. And there's a sense, there's a line when he articulates the essential characteristics of a, a Catholic university. He says basically that it has to be catholic in a structural sense and catholic in the sense of the uh, of the people who work there and study there. So I think what we see today or 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 where many universities go wrong is that they either have some catholic people but the institution as such is not very catholic say whether we're talking about dorm life or campus ministry or they have Catholic symbols, you know, large churches and Catholic initiatives, but the people themselves aren't very Catholic. And if you don't have both, what happens is that one tends to cancel or drown out the other. So the secular drift that happened after Lando Lakes made it so that one form of window dressing or another, a couple of famous theologians or a golden dome basilica on the campus or whatever became, <laughs> yeah. you know, became a symbol. Um, But that the
0: touchdown Jesus,
1: that's, that's right. That, that, the institution as such wasn't animated by Catholicism such that the curricular and the non-curricular were really complementing the formation and impact that the institution uh, had on the students. In fact, I love the little anecdotes that you and Rodney have about the Balthazar reading groups that you would have in your homes, because An interesting study of ex corde is just the number of times that John Paul II uses the word community. And this is a big part of Newman's vision too, that of course we have tests and classes and examinations, and that's very important for the work of the university and research, but he is envisioning a, a community that the students, faculty, and staff participate in a Catholic community, a vibrantly Catholic uh, community, and that has a difference on the impact that the institution has on the individuals.
0: Well, that's so true, and I think it's so very, very important that uh, one of the things that a Catholic university should be about is the creation of a little miniature Catholic culture on campus. After all, we're dealing with young people here, ages like 18, maybe through 25, 26, depending on, you know, when they start, whether they get graduate degrees, but largely 18 to 22 year olds. And this is an age of idealism. That's that's when young people are trying to figure out what they want to give their lives over to. What is it they want to commit their lives to? And this is the era of the time of dreaming big dreams. And if you walk onto a Catholic university, and it is besotted with a with a truncated Catholic imagination and no Catholic culture, and treats the Church as a mere kind of piety uh, for for simple-minded souls that might need that kind of thing. Then you're not going to you're not going to have that kind of Catholic culture. And so, you know, I look at someone like Notre Dame and we've, we've been kind of I've been I, I have been kind of trashing Notre Dame a little bit here. There are good things going on at Notre Dame. They have a good theology department. Uh, they they, ha- they have a good uh, a sort of student campus life there going on. But the question that I would have to, about Notre Dame and I know Fordham and others is what is the quality of the Catholic culture of the campus? That's that's the question. And I honestly don't know. I can't answer that with her. my wife is a domer, so I have to be careful here. <laughs> but uh, you you get my point
1: yeah i do and i think that so a litmus test for a question like that would be i would go to the school of engineering or the school of education and try to discern to what degree the faculty and students and deans of those schools are integrating the mission and identity into those schools. And that would be the litmus test of the overall you know, vibrancy of, of uh, Catholicism at that institution. Because I agree, oft, these places often have thriving theology departments or or. Uh, pastoral initiatives on campus but if you can spend four years there largely untouched by those things it's not a well integrated institution and that's something that people you know I, I think people need to have a larger uh, larger yeah. awareness of uh, if I could Larry something you said uh, struck me part of my work here in the administration at the university is i have to give various you know stump speeches to constituencies prospective students parents and a number of years ago i i was rereading crossing the threshold of hope and john paul ii has a chapter in there on youth and he says something that is very close to what you just said He said that youth is not a throwaway time. He's talking here about young adulthood, but it's actually a time given by divine providence so that young adults can figure out how it is that they are to serve God within the providential order, and I think that's such an important insight that for many, many people— College is basically a four-year waste of time, where you hope that young people don't get in trouble or don't get locked in jail, or you know get put in jail, and then they get the degree, which is kind of like a union card, and now they're twenty-two or twenty-three, and they get on with the rest of their life. And I think that it's such a tragedy that more people don't appreciate the significance of young adulthood in the providential order as a gift that God has given to young people to really grow into the calling that he gives to to each one. And to that degree, there's a passage in Ex Corde that I think is really important. It's number 23. I think parents and teachers and high school guidance counselors should really reflect on it. In that passage, he talks about what should happen to students at faithful Catholic universities, and he uses the word challenge twice. He says they should be challenged to grow in their faith and make it their own, and they should be challenged to pursue human and professional excellence, because if they're challenged in those two ways, they will have a unique impact on the society and the church and the culture for the rest of their lives and i think you know from what i can pick up with your discussions about the relationship that you have with your students and what i see here on this campus is that students love being challenged in this yes. way i am so impressed with committed young people and how much they can make out of out of these 4 years and part of the cultural malaise that we suffer broadly in society and definitely in the church is that people don't appreciate how hungry and capable young people are of being challenged.
0: And and I oh man, I am so happy to hear you say all that uh, because I think it is just so important, so critical, so true as we examine the question of how to reform Catholic higher education. Uh, because we need to understand. That Catholicism, that is watered down, milk toast beige Catholicism, is unattractive to that age group it it doesn't inspire them to her- heroism it doesn't call them out of themselves it just seems to them to be their grandpappy's uh grandpappy's religion and and it means nothing on the other hand a robust catholicism that challenges that is provocative even sometimes if it irritates calls people out of themselves and is attractive to them which i think accounts for why so many young people are drawn to that crazy thing called the latin mass and and you know young Young ladies wearing the mantilla and stuff like that you know what what's going on here well it's because it's just weird enough to be provocative i mean right. it's like old ties that i have that went out of fashion but i held on to them that are now back in fashion so in a sense the old latin mass has now been so forgotten <laughs> that that it's it's new and it's crazy and it's wild to you i'm not necessarily saying the Novus ordo is bad but you get my point and one last thing here which is that yeah, about those uh, those those study groups that Rodney and I had in our home. We started with just he and I and a few theology professors and maybe a few other professors discussing articles out of Comunio in our homes and Communio study circle, and we thought, well. You know, this is just for professor types. This is high end stuff. And then we started inviting some of our better students who expressed an interest. And then they started inviting their friends before long, long story short, within two or three years, we were jamming 60 to 70 people in Hauser's living room or my living room on the night of a communal study circle. And it wasn't just, you know, everybody there having a good time. People were there to discuss big ideas, young people. It was incredible. Matt Cooner, Joe Lanzolotti, they went through that. Um, and so, yeah, this is a time for universities to provoke, to challenge. You know, it's, I just think on oh, one last thing, and then I'll let you talk again. You are the guest after all. Um, I, I think we cannot neglect as well in this regard and talking about reforming things. The role played by very, very good Newman centers on the, the campus, to say, of major public universities, I think of my own home state of Nebraska. I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, and there is, a, there is one Catholic university in Nebraska, Creighton University in Omaha. Uh, it's one of those Catholic and name only Jesuit places to which I say to people, the most Catholic institution of higher ed in Nebraska is the University of Nebraska in Lincoln because of the Newman Center. You are much much better off as a Catholic parent sending your children to the University of Nebraska and then sending them off to the Newman Center than you are sending them off the road in Omaha to Creighton University, uh, which is a fine school academically but not very Catholic.
1: Yeah, it's uh that's why we need you know you said five I would say maybe twenty really faithful robust catholic universities because it's uh I converted to catholicism as an undergrad at a state school so uh I you know the lord reached me in a in a in a place that is as antithetical to christianity and conversion as you can imagine uh but it's also it's also a risky proposition just in the sense that the the institution as such is not going to encourage any of the students to benefit from what's going on in the in the Newman Center and the dorm life is gonna contradict it. So um, if the Catholic university is indistinguishable from its non-Catholic counterparts, uh, then I don't know why anyone would pay the money to go there. But on the other hand, I would say the parents should not be naive that the state school, and I think Nebraska is unique because that Newman Center is thriving,
0: it has uh, dorms. Uh, it has dorms.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, parents should not be naive that the state university with a good parish or a good Newman Center nearby is not uh, really just a, a a robust Catholic collegial experience. It's a risky proposition.
0: Yeah, uh, because most universities are going in the classroom are going to give students uh, sort of woke ideology, the whole thing. They're going to undermine uh, the Catholic faith left and right. And so, yeah, someplace like the University of Nebraska is probably uh, an exception to the rule, primarily because the University of Nebraska, though a university and it has its woke elements, has not succumbed since it is Nebraska, after all, it has not <laughs> succumbed to this general wave. So that's a good caveat to the point that I made about Newman Centers. All I, I, in some ways, I'm being autobiographical here. I'm just remembering uh, that my experience at the Newman Center in Lincoln was so vibrant, so life-giving, so vocation-giving. It was just incredible. But your point is well taken, which is why ultimately the goal is the reconstruction of real Catholic universities, such as what Ave Maria is doing places like Steubenville, Christendom and other places. So what then what then is, is the path forward? Let me begin by this saying, obviously, the path forward is you know, OK. We start places like Ave Maria. Uh, but what what role do you think the bishops have to play in this? Largely, bishops take a very hand. Uh, I remember years ago, St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia held some sort of queer film festival, Or something or other. And so people complained to Archbishop Chaput do something about this. And he said, ah, there's nothing I can do. It's a Jesuit place. So kind of hands off for me. Is that true? I mean, canonically speaking, I'm ignorant of canon law. I don't know. Do, Do you think bishops should be playing a more active role here?
1: First, ex corde certainly says that they should. So there are a lot of passages in ex corde about the responsibility of bishops to be involved at some level and even to promote and encourage, you know, the Catholic universities. He doesn't mean look the other way. I think he means to promote and encourage authentic Catholic education. So uh, the bishops, my sense is that they feel discouraged and they don't know what to do. So they just stand back on the sidelines. Yeah, Uh, Our our local ordinary is an ex-officio member of the board, and he comes to every meeting and is involved, and the relationship with him is incredibly helpful. And we always have at least one other bishop from around the country at large on our board of trustees. Uh, it was Bishop Rhodes for a while from you know Fort Wayne, South Bend. Uh, so I have found that the involvement with the bishops is helpful for the University it's also helpful for the bishops to see uh, what they can do. Our Bishop celebrates the mass of the Holy Spirit he comes to the Aquinas conference that you weren't able to come to and and says says Mass and pretty much comes any other time we invite him you know to speak to students or to be a part of a liturgical uh celebration. And I have never understood why the bishops at least can't gently either request presence on the board, be on the board, or meet regularly with the administration and the board and say, this is what I'd like, or this is what I think you need to do in order to realize um, your mission. So I think part, part of the problem is that they don't appreciate how much even their modest presence with some articulated expectations could help these institutions find the alignment. Imagine if a bishop went to the chairman of the board of trustees and said, I'm really unhappy with uh, the fact that only 33% of the faculty at this university are Catholic. I'd like you guys to try to remedy that. And the board of trustees then told the president, you need to make a better effort to hire you know Catholics who can support the mission. So, For whatever reason, they don't do that, but if they did do that and there was more alignment, I think it would have a very positive, tangible impact, and it may just be that they don't realize right now what it is to be done.
0: Well, this, man, this raises so many issues. Uh, First off, in defense of Archbishop Chaput, who was a very good man and was a good archbishop and who, in my opinion, should have been given a red hat, uh, but that's a different tale for a different day. Uh, my guess is you said something I think that really struck me, which is they, they just feel like they're kind of overwhelmed. Uh, they're, they're just, you know, when Archbishop Chaput, I'm sure he hated the fact that there was a queer film festival at St. Joseph's College. All right. But his attitude probably is the Jesuit school. It's you know, it's been 60 years in the devolution process from a Catholic school to a secular school. What can I do? What can I really do to step in? I, I can put a Band-Aid on this and try to put a stop to the queer festival, but it's not really going to address the underlying disease that afflicts St. Joseph's University, and that is the secularizing of its vision of education. So that then brings me uh, to my point with regard with regard to the bishops. And and it's a point about the approach to Catholic higher ed in general. Have certain Catholic institutions of historic St. Louis, University, the Jesuit schools, you know St. Joseph's, Georgetown, and, and then perhaps some other, some Holy Cross uh, places, for example, Franciscan places. Have they reached a tipping point? Have they reached simply a point of no return? And we simply, like my, my wife used to be, run the online degree program. She has a PhD in theology, online degree program for St. Joseph's College in Maine, which is a mercy school run by Sisters of Mercy. But she quit, quit that job. Because the place is absolutely not Catholic anymore, has no desire to be Catholic anymore. So the question is, and I've had this debate with others, some say, no, we stay and we fight in those places because, um, after all, they're Catholic institutions. They have buildings, <laughs> there's a history there. All it takes is a great, like Father Scanlon, like president to come in and turn things around. If the, others would say, and I'm in this boat, just write them off and start from scratch with something else. So what, what say you to all of that?
1: I would say in their current configuration, most of those schools probably have reached a tipping point. The thing that would need to change is alignment with the board and president on mission. So again, Ave Maria University was founded recently and found it to be faithful to ex corde so we're in a unique situation where there isn't a turnaround on these points but this will sound radical to your listeners by our bylaws 100% of the of the board of trustees have to be practicing catholics so there's no you know you don't court the you know the the billionaire atheist just because they're looking for you know they yeah. they they they're looking uh to to be involved in some philanthropic initiative um so if those universities said and I, and i i think this is largely the case there there are lots of good people at all these institutions where the discouragement that we talk about is palpable, and they said, "Gee, what could we do?" Well, how about if we got the board to get the president to agree to three, you know, small steps or initiatives? Uh, Ex Corde says that the majority of the faculty should be, you know, Catholic and able to support the mission. When we wrote our faculty handbook and bylaws, because of that, we said that 75% of the, the faculty have to be Catholic. So we don't want to just go for the minimum, you know, whatever majority means. That that. Yeah. Um, but then also that each department has to be at least 50% Catholic or better. So one of the things that happens is if you have, you know, 10 theology professors and 10 philosophy professors and 10 literature professors and they're all catholic which happens often in the humanities then the entire business department isn't non you know is non catholic and then you say well we're still you know 50% catholic well the reality is there are entire pockets of that institution in which there's no presence of catholicism so if these institutions are unhappy with that, the only way that they can change is starting with the board and starting with the president to say, you know, we want you to take steps. As it starts with hiring, in my opinion, and vigilance in hiring, uh, to to remedy and improve this, give them metrics. Say ex corde says majority, so let's go for 60%. Let's have a five-year plan. You know, to get to 60 uh, percent, if they're willing to do that, they could, you know, come out of it. But if they're not willing to do that, then I think they have to be they have to be written off.
0: Oh, I agree. And I think they do. And I and I, I just don't see it happening. And so we need we need startups like Ave Maria and, and some others. Uh, plus, all it's probably possible for smaller Catholic universities like where I was, DeSales University, to make the change more quickly, that even if they've reached a certain moribund state, it might be possible to resurrect them uh, m- more more easily. But I want to come back to your point about about the critical mass of Catholics. I once said to the president of DeSales University he was actually pretty good on this. You know that because we were talking about Catholic higher ed, and I said the bottom line is this: you can't have a Catholic university without Catholics. You might have all the right uh, architecture and statues, but if you don't have Catholics working for you, then it's, you know personnel is policy. Guter uh, Leute muss man haben. Good people must want to have. And there isn't. This isn't just a litmus test of orthodoxy issue here. It's also got to do with the very nature of of a university, and so so. And by that, I mean there's no one size fits all theology of business or theology of literature or theology of chemistry. Okay. There's no one size where. Does the creativity in a university emerge out of? It emerges out of when your chemistry professor is actually a deeply and profoundly Catholic person, or when your English professor is a deeply and profoundly Catholic person, because it is in the personal interface within their soul, in the creativity of their mind, that you see coming together a robust Catholic faith and a robust understanding of their own discipline. That can't be mandated, but it can be inculcated via a culture that begins by hiring catholics it's that simple
1: you're absolutely right larry it's the 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 culture that takes a life on a life of its own between the students and the faculty and staff whether it's daily mass we have a spontaneous student led rosary at 9 p.m. every night where they you know where they walk the campus that when you get the critical mass those types of things start to take on a life of their own. And I've never, so I have conversations with my peers. And one of the things that I find strange is that I get a sense that one of the reasons why we got to this point in Catholic higher education is because administration felt like they had to completely offload the hiring process. So the history department's doing a higher and the history department runs the search, and then at the end they tell, you know, tell you we want to hire this candidate. We always front load our search process. What are we trying to do here? We require that every applicant write a statement on X Cordae as part of the, the um, application process and it's funny how revealing you know those those documents are we don't presuppose that everyone has a command of ex corde but they look at the document and you see what types of threads they pick up on and then what they say you know says a lot about how they might contribute to the life and culture of the campus And then I interview every single candidate for a full-time faculty position. And the president interviews every single candidate for a full-time faculty position. So I've always been utterly flummoxed by the total offloading of the search process. We tell up front every search has certain things, you know, certain criteria that they have to meet, like every candidate has to submit the ex Corte statement. And we don't let them bring a candidate to campus at a time when we can't meet with the candidates. And so not only does that create vetting, but one of the things that I've realized is that it creates a cultural expectation up front. So the candidate is also interviewing the institution in a sense, and it becomes clear to them that if they join this university community, this isn't just smoke and mirrors, but the president will sit across the table with them and say, you know, so tell me what your commitment is to mission. And so the very expectation that they enter the institution with is totally different than if that process had been totally offloaded.
0: Amen. Amen. And uh, it, it begins and ends with the kind of culture, intellectual culture, that you create. And I would add this, and I'm, I'm interested to see what you think of this. Uh, I would add that if you have this critical mass of, of Catholics in, across the university, not just atomized in the theology department, across the university, and you have really have this vibrant Catholic intellectual cult- culture, It is then possible to hire non-Catholics of a high intellectual caliber who are nevertheless open to a conversation with that culture. I'm thinking if Jordan Peterson applied to DeSales University, would I, if I were dean, hire him? Yes, I would hire Jordan Peterson, okay, because he would be an interesting conversation. So you don't end up with a sort of monochrome thing. But also, and I'm going to relate something biographically, because the people themselves, like you said, they, they come and they recognize the culture there and they agree to it and they actually like it. Well, I spent one year at DeSales as academic dean, interim academic dean, and we were hiring a new psychology professor. Great guy. I won't mention his name. I don't want to embarrass him. He came in for the interview with me and I started asking him questions about whether or not he could abide by the Catholic identity of the school and so on and so forth. And we had a lovely conversation about that. And turns out he was kind of a fallen away Catholic, uh, but still had this. He was still Christ haunted. Let's put it that way. And he was church haunted. Uh, but he was a deeply, profoundly intelligent man, and and very interested in debating big ideas and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and understood the faith. Uh, so that interview got over with, and I was mentioning to the provost to the university uh, my conversation with him, and she got livid with me, and she said, "How dare you bring up?" Catholic identity issues with a psychology, a prospective psychology candidate. We really want to hire this guy. And here you are probably running him off with your Catholic scare tactics. So we ended up did hiring the guy. And I talked to him later afterwards. And he goes, not only did I, was I not offended by that conversation, that's the conversation that brought me to your school. That's when I became convinced that this is the place I wanted to be. He's still not a Catholic, but he turned into one of the greatest intellectual interlocutors that we had. With our theology department uh, uh, on campus, so that that's when you. My point is that when you have that critical mass, when you have that foundation, then it's possible to incorporate some of these other elements.
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right, and I've had that experience many times, Larry. Where the candidates, wherever they're coming from, really appreciate the candid conversation with myself and with the president because it clarifies for them what they're getting into and what the expectations are. And when they decide to a- accept an offer as a result of that, you're already off and running. There's no bait and switch going on. That's
0: right. And there's no like, hey, wait a minute, you hired me to do this. And now you're pulling all this Catholic junk on me. No, right. they know right from the get go uh, what, what the deal is. And, and they're sort of attracted to it. Uh, we're running up. Oh, we We've got about maybe 10 more minutes here. Uh, and so I, I do want to return to this question of of reforming institutions that are already here. And, you know, some of them are probably salvageable versus and, and are versus maybe startups. Now, Ave Maria is unique as a startup in the sense that you had you had a bucket load of money from Tom Monaghan to start this. So you said, for example, all your Board members are required to be, you know, active Catholics, and that you didn't prioritize putting the billionaires on there. Let me play devil's advocate here. Uh, say from my own university, my own former university, DeSales University, they did follow the path of seeking out board members who were rich. DeSales University was a hand-to-mouth operation starting in the '60s. It was poor. There were some months early on where they didn't even know if they could make payroll. So, if, you know, it's it's. It's kind of, it would be a luxury for them to say, we're only going to have practicing Catholics. Uh, they needed, they needed those rich donors. Ave Maria didn't. Ave Maria had Tom Monaghan's money. So of course, so I'm not saying that to criticize. I'm, I'm saying, yeah, right. So this is where I, I came in early and asked about the role of the bishops. We need Catholic universities in order to start up, to do what Ave Maria is doing. Let's face they need money. So where is that money going to come from, do you think?
1: Yeah, well, I think there are a couple of things that come to mind, Larry. The first thing is that I hope this conversation reaches parents uh, and you know high school guidance counselors and things like that, because to speak of the money, I think you can make a case that faithful Catholic education is worth the money. So a lot of them say, like, I would send my kids to Ave or DeSales if they got a full ride, but otherwise I'm just going to send them to the local state school. I think there's a little bit of a myth out there that Catholic education is not affordable. Uh, 98% of the students at Ave Maria are on some form of scholarship. And I think that that's true, uh, you know, broadly speaking, uh, maybe apart from the Um, super elite institutions. Uh, The second thing is that I found in my work in the administration here is that when it comes to the money, the kinds of donors who support Ave Maria or in a parallel situation, you see the boom town that Hillsdale has with its messaging about political conservatism. The the money comes from clear-mindedness. Uh, in, in yes. you know, cl- clear mindedness about what the message and the mission is, I have to watch these things. You know, Christendom just completed or is almost completing a large capital campaign, which resulted in the construction of that 30 million dollar church. Franciscan and Belmont Abbey both have completed or nearly completed campaigns that they expanded. Uh, because
0: Benedictine College, too.
1: Yeah, so the money comes from clear-mindedness, being able to articulate fidelity, and there's a constituency of Catholics in America who care about the future of Orthodox Catholicism, and the milk toast Catholicism just doesn't, you know, do- doesn't excite them. So I have found to to your question about the board and the rich people uh, getting getting on the board. In my work, I have found that the choice between a faithful Catholic who loves the mission and someone else who has some other advantage, whether it's a doctorate from Columbia or a lot of money, is a false choice. That yes. you know, maybe maybe the Lord is just blessing Ave Maria uniquely, but my general experience is that the idea that we can't be completely faithful and succeed is is really a false choice, and that's one of the dilemmas that's governing a lot of the decision making at these other institutions, is that uh, the modern world is full of bifurcations and false dichotomies, and I think that's one of them.
0: Sure is. I'm so happy to hear you. You're, I mean, I I, I I hope I threw a nice slow fast, not a slow fast, but a slow ball over the for you to hit, because uh, this is singing my song for years and years and years, I would say, and I didn't make myself you know, the, the, the favorite person of the administration at DeSales over the years, let's just say this, because I made this very point, if you build it, they will come. Uh, if, you, if you begin first with mission, then, then the money will flow. The fact is, you're a Catholic school, and if you sell out your Catholicism in order to appeal, you not only have sold out your Catholicism, but you no longer appeal, and, and you don't make the money you think you're going to make. And so DeSales University always tried to out Penn State, Penn State and its various little satellite campuses. And 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 yet it couldn't out Penn State, Penn State. And so to this day, DeSales is still a kind of it's better off than it used to be a hand to mouth operation. And it's better off than most Catholic schools in terms of its Catholic identity. Uh, You know, it's not it's not bad, Uh, but still. If they, if they had simply followed my advice, right, and larded the board with de- devout Catholics and hired devout Catholics, in my opinion, they would be thriving now instead of just getting along to get along. Uh, and so, yeah, there is that element of missional importance that is so, so, so critical here. And one and of the you, things, if, go if ahead. I
1: could just say, Larry, um, there's often a perception that Catholic, faithful Catholic universities are important for a negative reason, namely that you know your child won't lose their faith. And I think that's not a great way to present it, like to kind of fear-monger people. Right. I think faithful Catholic universities, and I, I, I think I could back this up, are actually better universities. Father Lamb used to say, and you know, he, he had these, yeah, this unique way of saying these pithy statements, but you know what a faithful Catholic university is doing is actually it's offering more, not less than its secular counterpart because we have a whole unified vision of reality that we're transmitting to our students. So there's a, a kind of negative perception that you can go to the big state school and really get a great degree in accounting Or you can leave that behind and go to the knuckle-dragging, you know, faithful, faith-based school, and at least you won't lose your faith. And my experience is that the opposite is true, that the small Catholic liberal arts institutions are not only more rigorous and more challenging, the faculty are more accomplished and engaged in their fields. There are a lot of uh, statistics. I have to track these things, but... 100% 100% of the graduates of our nursing program have passed their NCLEX exam now over the course of eight years, um, the na- and, and um, like 95% pass on the first time. The national average is like 82%. Well, yes. why is that? All these nursing students are taking theology and philosophy along with their nursing, and not to sound, you know, braggadocious or glib, but I just think Faithful Catholic universities are not only good for the faith of the students, they're actually better institutions of higher learning because they're Catholic.
0: Oh, amen. That is so true. And that's because they're true universities. I mean, what, what goes by the name of university anymore, a uni you know university is they're not really universities anymore they're they're professional schools pre-professional schools they're a grab bag of various boutique majors and and, and, and topics uh, that have no connection one to the other. It's a job factory. It's, a, as you said earlier, a union card that you've essentially paid for, but there's no unified vision. I think in my own case, I mean, I debated, I went to minor seminary, but before I did that, I debated simply going to the University of Nebraska and getting an undergraduate degree in philosophy. But I went and talked to some of the people there, and the philosophy was all analytic philosophy and modern philosophy and atheist philosophy. So I ended up going to undergraduate seminary in northern Kentucky, and, and thank God I did. It, you know, the, the seminary was just this podunk little place, hand to mouth, you know, with 120 seminarians in it. And but I was reading Augustine, Aquinas, Bonaventure, you know, and then I got introduced to great theologians of, of the modern era and you know, a Maritana, Gilson, a peeper, and the, and it ended up being a vastly superior education even though the minor seminary was very poor very small ramshackle you know but you're right you're absolutely right
1: yeah uh that i i got my masters at franciscan i converted to catholicism my senior year of my undergraduate studies i was at saint cloud state university a huge institution tens of thousands of students you know well funded programs in the sciences and engineering and I think, and I'm not exaggerating or being rhetorical, that I had one professor who had written a book and I went to Steubenville, which this was over 20 years ago, was smaller than and less well-known. Like every other professor had written, if not a book, multiple books. And so it's just, it's an anecdote, but the I think it's because people who come to institutions like this are passionate about their discipline and have a sense of mission about these things, whereas the mediocrity that these large secular schools engender is, uh, you know, really inoculates people after a while against seeing the relevance of what they're doing.
0: Yeah, you know, not only inoculates them, but I mean, actively works against the idea that what they're doing has any heuristic meaning or Metaphysical or spiritual meaning of some kind—it's—it's it's deadening, it, and and so I can't emphasize enough—you know—the good things going on at places like Ave Maria, Franciscan, uh, you know, Christendom places like that. I mean, I remember when I was DeSales always tr- tr- tried to chart a middle path between being being not we're, we're not secular we're not we're not georgetown we're not fordham uh, it, it, we're not these highly secular but we're also we don't want to their favorite phrase among the oblates of saint francis de sales that ran to salesman we don't want to be steubenville after all and i would say oh yeah by all means let's not be steubenville let's not be successful and Thriving and have a vibrant Catholic culture on campus by all means, you know. Uh, let's, let's and what what that addresses though is there is this, and I want this could be maybe the, one of the last things that we address. There is this stigma that's attached to places like a Christendom or Ave Maria or a Franciscan that you see even amongst halfway sane people at places like DeSales, and that stigma is well, that's just all for the weirdo Uber. Ugh, st- Ooey gooey Catholics who are into sort of like a capy Catholic groupyism or whatever. We're not into that. What that's that's clearly that sort of stereotype and stigma. Like you said, the knuckle draggers, whatever. What do you what do we do to sort of can we do anything to sort of remove that stigma?
1: Almost every person who visits this campus says they are shocked by the joy that they see on this campus. And when prospective students and their families visit, it's the biggest selling point. Before we give them stump speeches and tours, the impact that our current students have on visitors to this campus by far outweighs any other thing that you know we can do or say to people. So I would just go back to the winsome nature of vibrant Catholic community, there's a joy. We try to, we actually use it as a marketing slogan. It's from ex corde quoting Augustine. There's a joy in the truth. And I don't find I I find our students to be quite normal. You know, we have bourbon club and cigar club. We're not a dry campus.
0: Uh,
1: (laughs) We're we're not a dry campus because we do believe that part of the formation that we want to offer is a maturation and freedom. So students, as they turn 21, you know, are are free to drink um, on the on the campus. And uh, so I think it's just a caricature of people who have never really experienced vibrant you know, vibrant Catholic life. Um, Could I add two two quick anecdotes, Larry?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You go for it.
1: I know we're wrapping up, but the the first anecdote is that I have a mantra, and the faculty kind of roll their eyes when I say this, because I think there's a benign way that it could be said, but I think every serious Catholic institution of higher learning should stop using the, fa- the, the phrase critical thinking as a goal for the purpose of Catholic education. And I know there is a way in which critical thinking can be used, you know, in a kind of harmless way. But we all have seen how radical the critical turn can go. And what critical thinking means really is the inculcation of doubt. So I think Catholic universities should be committed to forming right thinking, truthful thinking, you know, virtuous thinking, logical thinking. But people throw around these slogans like go to a, you know, go to a liberal arts school so you can become a critical thinker that is kind of vacuous. We should really want to learn how to think well and in a disciplined way. And uh, critical thinking, generally speaking, is just code word for doubt. And then yeah. the second thing that I think is really important is there is this trump card that's often played against committed Catholic education <laughs> that comes from the Heideggerian philosoph- philosophical tradition that has redefined philosophy as an open-ended series of questioning. So they they say something like, you can't, be an intellectually serious university if you already profess up front an adherence to dogma that you're not really serious about seeking the truth and pursuing truth and i you know saint thomas and john paul ii newman all address this that falling in love engenders a desire to know the beloved more so the idea that a catholic institution that is committed to the faith of the church, that is committed to the doctrine of the church, is somehow not serious about intellectual pursuits and the pursuit of the truth, I find to be a very nefarious caricature. It's precisely, you, you know, that you, there's no antithesis between knowing the truth and desiring to come to a deeper knowledge of it. And I think that's actually a much more, promising endeavor than the discouraging idea that we're just going to question and question and question with 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 no realization you know no end to it or no deepening of our conformity to to reality so i think critical yeah. thinking is overused and i think a commitment to the truth is actually essential for the passionate pursuit of the truth
0: oh man That is a great way to sort of wrap things up here because I couldn't agree more. I used to tell my students all the time. This goes back all the way to 1994 when I first started teaching at DeSales. I would say, you hear the phrase all the time, right, right, guys? Uh, I'm not here to tell you what to think, but how to think. And I would say, no, I'm actually here to teach you both. And I'm actually here to teach you more about what to think, because I think if you get the what to think right, then by a con natural process of maturation, you will learn how to think. Uh, In other words, truth will guide you. And the acceptance of truth doesn't close the mind. It opens it. You bloom like a flower that sees the sunlight for the first time and opens up. Okay, I said, yeah, I'm here to tell you what to think. And the second thing, with I love what you said there at the end about dogmas. You can't be a real uh, intellectually independent institution if you're beholden to dogmas. Well, I I posted on social media about a month ago. One of the upsides to woke culture, one of the upsides to universities that are now canceling conservative speakers, heckling them out right off the campus, is that no longer can that dogma card be used against us, right? right? Because obviously what these secular universities or just more liberal universities are saying is that we have values. And our educational system is oriented around those values, and any speaker that comes to our campus has to espouse those values. Now, I don't like their values. I think they're incorrect values, but I also think that they have every right to in a sense, have a formal principle around which they have formulated an educational process. It's all completely wrong, and all the more reason why Catholic schools should double down on the truths of the faith as the formal aspect of how we construct the university, because our truths are true, (laughs) and therefore make for a better university, as you said before. Uh, So that dogma thing is such a red herring, such an awful red herring, that hopefully is being exposed. Thank you for this conversation. This uh, It's been worth the wait, I think, um, and if you'd be open to it, I wouldn't mind doing a part two uh, uh, down the road, uh, and hopefully maybe our paths will cross in person someday.
1: We'll get you down here, Larry.
0: Yeah. You know, the biggest downside to me not being able to go there last February is I loathe and despise winter with every fiber of my being. And so I was looking forward to being on the Gulf Coast of Florida in February, at least for three days. So if you do have me down, yeah, make it in February again, that would be great.
1: We can arrange that.
0: Do you have any uh, last thoughts or words before we wrap up here?
1: Just that in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of St. John Paul II, in the eyes of St. John Henry Newman, Catholic universities that are fully committed to the principles of the church and Catholic education are essential to the, the culture of the church and to the transformation of society. So we, I think, have a tendency to sort of under appreciate in what, in the eyes of the church, the role that a Catholic university is to have in the realization, the full realization of the church's mission. And I'm grateful to have this conversation with you because we've got to try to help more, you know, more bishops, more clergy, more parents, more principals, more high school guidance counselors, how important helping young people land at faithful Catholic institutions where they can experience true human flourishing really is.
0: Oh, so well said. And uh, man, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. Like I said, I hope we, uh, we can have you on as a repeat guest uh, in the future. Thank you so much, Dr. Nutt, uh, and thank you to everyone for listening to, because I think this is one of the most important topics out there, Uh, in the Catholic Church in the United States today, the reforming of Catholic higher education. So thank you all for listening. Bye now. God bless, Larry. God bless you.